Welcome to this week's podcast at Bergen Park Church from Evergreen, Colorado. We hope you enjoy this message, and if you'd like to hear any more or learn more about the church, please visit bergenparkchurch.org. So we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2 again uh, today, verses 8 through 10 this morning. Now in the Middle Ages, uh, science was not uh, nearly as developed as it is today. So before there were chemists, there were alchemists. Okay, And the idea behind alchemy was to attempt to transform base metals, such as lead, into precious metals, such as gold. Okay, That was one of the things that alchemists did. Now, I probably read too many science fiction and fantasy novels, but I picture a medieval occultist cloaked and hooded, hunched over an archaic scroll, as the light of a sconce-mounted torch illuminates his cloistered laboratory, or that sort of thing. I picture sparks flying from a, a blackened crucible as the smoke of unseen elixirs rises and disperses against the vaulted ceilings of a, a Gothic ruin, or, or that sort of thing. Alchemy, right? Alchemy. Now, um, alchemy might seem like the stuff of fantasy novels, but historically this, this was a reality, transforming, or at least attempting to transform lead into gold. Now, so far as I know, no one has ever been uh, successful uh, with this, this feat, with this task. I imagine that uh, centuries of failure coupled with advances in modern natural philosophy have left alchemy in obscurity where it belongs. Honestly, the idea behind alchemy is pretty stupid. You can't turn lead into gold. So here's my question, here's my problem. Why do so many of us today think that we can take the principles of alchemy and apply them to our spiritual life? Why do we think we can take our sullied gray lead of our mere human efforts, our, our righteousness, our works, and transform these things into the gold of salvation. We think we can convert our ruined souls into something spiritually pure. So in the crucible of the modern evangelical church, Many have unknowingly taught and even practiced a gospel of, we'll call it soteriological alchemy, okay? The belief that the idol of human effort can be melted down and rewrought into Christ and all the benefits of knowing him. Human effort, right? So remember last week we talked a little bit about soteriology. This is essentially just the, the, the doctrine of salvation, the idea that the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has a plan of redemption for his people through the cross of Jesus Christ, through God's grace. That is the doctrine of soteriology. So this morning I want to talk a little bit about this idea of soteriological alchemy and why it's a problem and how the Apostle Paul responds to this in Ephesians chapter 2. Why we can't take our mere human works of righteousness and transform them into the gold of salvation. Okay, so let's take a look at Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. 
For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would guide us now in our study this morning. Would you guide us as we ponder the meaning of this passage? Help us, Lord, to understand better what your grace is in our lives to savor that grace, to walk in that grace. Would you guide us, Lord, this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. So here's the point of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Okay, the point is simply this. You didn't save yourself. You didn't save yourself. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6, tells us that our righteousness is like filthy rags in the sight of God. The best we can do, even the very best we can do, is but filthy rags in the sight of God. Imagine going before the throne room of God. Imagine standing in God's presence and trying to plead your case for why you ought to enter into eternity, why you ought to enjoy his presence forever, why you ought to have eternal life. And you bring God a sack of, of trash, garbage. Here you go, God. Here's some banana peels, some broken glass, a couple of dirty diapers, maybe some used tissues. Here you go, God. Look at what I brought you. It doesn't work that way, you see. We can do nothing to add to our salvation. The only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. The only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. This quote has been attributed to a number of different Protestant uh, thinkers, Philip Melanchthon, Jonathan Edwards, but there's a lot of truth there. The only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. Soteriological alchemy says we can turn trash into eternal life. God says that it is by grace you have been saved through faith. We make no contribution. We think, though, at times, if I give him a little something, if I give him some faith, if I give him something, he will accept me. But Ephesians chapter 2 tells a different story. It is by grace we've been saved. Now, I want to unpack verse 8 just a little bit. We need to take a look at the Greek here because there are some questions about what exactly does Paul have in mind in verse 8? What is he talking about when he says this is a gift of God? Okay, so the idea here, I think the most natural reading of the the text, the most natural rendering of the Greek in verse 8 suggests that both grace and faith, to some extent, are considered here to be a gift of God. So this demonstrative pronoun, the word huto in Greek, the word this, you'll find that in verse 8 if you look at your Bible. The, the word this, at least in part, refers to pisteos, the, the word faith. Okay, So even faith itself is something God has allowed us to have, has provided for us. Faith itself is a divine gift. Grace also, by definition, is a gift of God's favor, right? Unmerited favor. So this suggests that it would be redundant to refer to grace alone as the gift. I think it's more reasonable to suggest here that what Paul is referring to by that word, this, is both faith and grace. 
We see this in other parts of the, of the scripture as well. If you go back to Exodus chapter 33, for example, we read that Moses found favor in the eyes of God. Moses found favor in the eyes of God. God extended his grace to Moses. And that grace was manifest through God passing by Moses and showing him his goodness, showing him his glory. That was a gift that God gave to Moses. It was a manifestation of his grace. So my point here is this. We need to be careful not to unwittingly adopt a diminished view of grace and opt for an elevated or lopsided emphasis on human effort when we talk about the gospel, when we talk about this concept of grace. See, our alchemist tendencies incline us to forget that there's no faithfulness without faith, there's no faith without grace, there's no grace apart from the work of God in our lives, apart from Jesus Christ. See, the gospel is the good news that God has done for us what we could not do for ourselves, and that is to restore our relationship to the Father, to restore a broken relationship. So we fall into these kind of alchemical tendencies when we forsake the life-giving gospel of our salvation. And today, this morning, I want to draw your attention to four different areas where we have the tendency to undermine grace. Okay, so we have to be very careful and really understand where Paul is going here in Ephesians chapter 2. What is this idea of grace that he's referring to here? Because if we're not careful, we can slip into these tendencies to undermine grace. So the first problem is that we can fall into gospel boredom. If we have a deficient view of the grace of God, we fall into gospel boredom. Now, the gospel must not fluctuate with the times, okay? Soteriological alchemy thrives when we become bored with the work of God in our lives. When we tire of the same old truth, the same old Christ, the same old scripture, opting instead for the false freshness of some new teaching or some new exciting uh, interpretation of scripture, some novel revisionist reading of the Bible stories. See, gospel boredom is a failure to know and experience the overwhelming beauty and majesty and glory of Jesus Christ. And when we fail to know who he is, we, we, we end up losing interest. We're looking for something new. See, understand here, as we've talked about over the last few weeks, the purpose here of Paul in, in chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians is to lead us into a theological foundation for the purpose of doxology. Theology for the purpose of doxology. That is, theology for the purpose of worship. Not just theology for the sake of learning, but that we would be drawn into the presence of God to worship him, to know him. So gospel boredom, we have to pay attention uh, have you ever started listening to a piece of music, maybe on Spotify or on the radio, or maybe a, a record you've purchased, and you love that music, and you listen to that music, and you listen to it repeatedly, again and again, day after day, week after week, eventually you kind of lose interest, right? The novelty of it wears off. And then we go to look for something new, a new musician, a new song, a new something, it happens all the time. We, we get bored with the same old thing. And see, when we forget the essentials of the gospel or fail to grasp the, the wonder of the gospel by exploring the riches of God's word, we naturally lose interest in it and we can turn to pursue other things, things that we think are, are fresh, things that we think are original. We foolishly tire of the only one who can sustain us just as the Israelites tired of the life 
sustaining manna that God provided for them in the desert. You know the story, if you go back to uh, Numbers chapter 11, we read how the Israelites were wandering in the desert and God had provided food for them. Manna, bread, every morning this, this bread would appear and the people would collect it and eat. And over time they grew tired of the same old food, the same old manna. And so eventually they called out to God for, for meat. They wanted meat. They complained. They said, well, at least back in Egypt, we had a variety of foods in our diet. We had meat. God ended up sending them meat. He sent them quail. And we read that he sent them not just a day's worth of quail or a week's worth of quail. He sent them so much quail, they became sick. It was coming out of their nostrils, it says in Numbers 11. Right? He, he, what they thought would be a blessing to them became a curse. They grew tired of God's grace. They, they grew tired of God's blessing and they wanted something new. Gospel boredom, right? Have we grown tired of God's grace? Have we grown tired of God's mercy? Have we forgotten the goodness and glory of the grace giver? The idea here that Paul is conveying, we need to be careful of gospel boredom. We need to marvel in the grace of God. It is by grace you have been saved. Secondly, when we fail to understand and appreciate God's grace, we can very easily fall into gospel fragmentation. Okay? Soteriological alchemy thrives on a fragmented or dichotomized gospel. And what I mean by this is that we sometimes want a Savior without wanting a Lord. We want the benefits of Christ, but we don't want Christ himself. We want justification, that is the declaration that we have been made righteous in the sight of God through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. So we want that. We want the righteousness. We don't want the sanctification. That is the transformation that comes through knowing God, being made into the likeness of Christ. So we, 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 we separate these two things. Salvation and lordship are actually two sides of the same coin. Okay? See, the benefits of Christ and the person of Christ are inextricably linked in Scripture. Those he justifies, he sanctifies. Jesus is objectively and historically the savior of the Christian by virtue of his atoning death, and he is objectively and historically Lord of the Christian by virtue of his resurrection and ascension to the right hand of the Father. And we saw that at the end of chapter 1 a couple of weeks ago, that Jesus was raised to the right hand of the Father from where he reigns with all authority, with all power, not only over the dominions and the powers of, of, of the world, but over the church. He is our Lord. So, we need to be careful. You, you see, it's impossible to have heaven without having Christ. It's impossible to receive the imputation of Christ's righteousness into our lives without being conformed to the image of Christ through the transformative and purifying work of the Holy Spirit. We must not simply seek the gift, you see. Rather, we should strive to know the gift giver. It's not just grace that we're after, it's the grace giver that we want. You can't separate an engagement ring, for example, from the person who gave it. Ladies, those of you who have been engaged, 
right? You, you enjoy, you appreciate that, that ring, but what's more valuable to you is the man that gave you the ring, right? You want the ring because in theory, in theory, you want the man behind the ring, right? You want to know that he treasures you, right? You want to know that he loves you, that he cares for you above all others. Now, that diamond might be worth thousands, but again, in theory, the man who gave it to you is invaluable. So let's be careful not to fragment, not to fragment the grace from the grace giver. Let's seek Christ. Now, the third thing we see, soteriological alchemy manifests itself whenever our spiritual life circumvents who Christ is in favor of who we are when we scorn what Christ has done in favor of what we do, okay? What I'm talking about here is this problem of egotistical kind of self-focus. There are no shortcuts to the gold of knowing God and, and the treasure of, of deathless eternity. Someone had to purchase those invaluable riches. Um, as we've seen already, uh, the book of Ephesians puts significant emphasis on the import of, of laying this solid theological foundation that I talked about, that we might live for the purpose of worshiping God, that we might know God. See, if you don't know God rightly, you cannot know yourself rightly. If you don't know God rightly, you can't know the world rightly. Knowing God allows us to properly situate ourselves in this world. See, this is why the gospel is an offense, 1 Corinthians 1.18. It offends our natural tendencies towards self-reliance. It offends our reliance on our own strengths and abilities. It offends our fundamental desire to be our own God, to be our own disciple, to be our own revelation. So when, by God's grace, we, we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we actually are committing the ultimate sin against the God of self. You see, the mantra of modern mankind is believe in yourself. I've, I've talked about this before. We use this as a, a self-blessing to kind of pull ourselves up, to achieve what we want, uh, to, to save ourselves, essentially. But this sorcerous incantation, believe in yourself, will never save anyone. To believe in oneself is, is to believe in an already failed body, mind, and soul. People who believe in themselves end up in one place, and that is hell. We need something outside of ourselves, something beyond ourselves, something greater than ourselves to save us. Now, for example, when, when, when my children were very young, they used to love to help me with projects around the house. We lived in Europe for a number of years, and I assembled a lot of IKEA furniture. I never want to see another piece of Ikea junk in my life. Um, everything came in a box. You had to put everything together. And my kids used to love to help me put together bookshelves and all kinds of Ikea stuff. Okay? And usually what that meant is that they would sit on top of the stuff I was trying to work on. Or I would hand them some screws and tell them, hang on to these, I need these in a minute. And the screws would end up rolling somewhere and we'd never find them again. That's what it amounted to. That's what help looked like or they would love to help me carry groceries into the house, which usually meant me with a number of sacks of groceries in my hands and a couple of kids hanging on my legs. That's what it looked like for them uh, to help. And see, in the same way that my children used to help me, we like to try to help God a little bit, don't we? We like to help him out with our salvation. 
But remember, Ephesians chapter 2 reminds us that we have a loving Father who desires to bless us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. God has done everything necessary for our salvation. There's nothing we bring. We contribute nothing, like I said, other than the sin that makes our salvation necessary. So fourthly and finally, we want to avoid gospel revision. Gospel revision. See, gospel revision often takes the form of repainting Jesus. And the way this has manifested itself in, in the church most frequently is viewing Jesus as a moral guide rather than as a Lord and Savior. For example, this kind of social gospel sees Jesus as a spiritual example to emulate rather than as a Savior and Lord to be worshipped. Notice that the narrative flow of the book of Ephesians as we've worked our way through the text really centers on the work of Jesus Christ in our salvation, not Jesus as, as an example to follow necessarily. And that comes later, okay? Understand that Paul is, is laying the theological foundation. We need to understand who Jesus is as Lord and Savior. Then chapters four through six talk about how we walk with Jesus, how we follow Jesus. But you've got to start in the right place, right? Who Jesus is objectively, what he's done for us in history. So notice how verses 8 and 9 talk about our salvific status and link that to the divine gifts of grace and faith. See, if we see Jesus as a mere moral example, then we're clearly standing outside of the substrata of rudimentary gospel truth. We, we, we've, we've misunderstood and misrelated what, what Jesus has done and who he is. It strains credulity, honestly, to posit that the worst of our problems is a need for a moral teacher. Now, we need moral instruction, but we don't just need a moral teacher. We need a Savior who will raise us from spiritual death, as we saw in Ephesians 2.1, from spiritual death into spiritual life. We need a complete overhaul of the heart, a reconditioning of the Spirit. See, gospel revision happens when we take the parts of Jesus we like, the parts of God's plan we like, the parts of the Spirit's work that we like, and then we throw out the rest. Gospel revision is kind of a rewriting of the story to fit our own purposes. Now think of it this way, here's an example. My wife really enjoys uh, finding new recipes online, and she'll go to these, these websites or blogs and, and look for new recipes to try. But oftentimes, before actually trying the new recipe, she looks at the, at the reviews. She wants to know, did, did this recipe turn out for other people? Was it a success? Is it good? Is it worth trying? Should we, should we do this? Should we uh, attempt this, uh, this particular recipe? And one of the things that really amuses us is when we find these reviewers who give the recipe five stars, but they've actually changed everything about the recipe. Have you encountered this maybe in your, your research online? They'll say, five stars, bet the best apple pie I have ever had in my life. I loved it. I just made a few changes, though. Uh, I took out the flour crust because I'm, I'm gluten-free, and I added a, an almond crumble, and I changed the apples to peaches because I, I prefer those, and instead of baking it in the oven, I cooked it on the stove. But five stars, best apple pie I have ever made. 
It's, that's so stupid. It's so stupid. Be careful not to endorse a gospel that you have rewritten to fit your desires. Okay, the point of all of this is that when we, we learn to walk in the grace of God, God remakes us, right? This is why verse 10 is so important here. This is not just something tacked onto the end. This is really integrated into what, what Paul is, is communicating to us here. See, God is sovereign over our salvation. He's sovereign over our new life, uh, which is honestly to be characterized by a lifestyle that reflects his character and his action. See, our good works are actually something that God has prepared in advance for us to do. God's work saves us and God's, or God's grace saves us and God's grace also allows us to walk in obedience to him. So your calling and your good works have been prepared by God. And this reflects back on, on what we saw in chapter one, that before the foundations of the world, God in his sovereignty set aside a people for himself to redeem that people, to adopt them in love into sonship. He prepared their salvation, but he also prepares the work that he has called us to do. He cares about the ends, he cares about the means, he cares about the whole picture. And Christians can very easily struggle with this question, well, what works of service has God called me to do? What does God want me to do specifically? See, Paul doesn't give us a list of things here to, to, to do. He just says, do the works that God has prepared. See, the answer to these questions is going to look different, I think, for every individual. But what does remain the same for every one of us is that good works naturally emerge when we learn to walk in God's grace as we worship him. Again, as we pursue God in worship, the good works flow from that. When we learn to see our works themselves through the lens of God's grace, that God favors us, that he loves us, we start to understand that it's not just what we do that matters, it's how we do it. It's how we do it and it's the one with whom we do it that matters. See, Paul's point in these verses is that works will never get you to God, but when God brings you to himself by grace, then that grace translates to the ability to perform these works of service. Works aren't just a, a list of tasks we accomplish for Jesus. Works are the daily grace in which we walk as we, the creation, worship the creator. Now, God has taught me some valuable lessons in this area over the last year or so. When Amy was, was diagnosed with her brain tumor last year, and you guys know the story, it was about January of last year, she got sick with that tumor, she's walked through surgery and radiation, all of this stuff over the last year, as we walked through that shadow valley of uncertainty, God in his grace gave us the opportunity to choose to either worship him and walk with him or to succumb to despair. You have that choice. Okay, God in his grace, in his goodness, allowed us to make that decision. Where are we going to land? Frustration or worship, Right? God, in his grace, gave us the opportunity to learn something through suffering. Many of you have walked through situations like this as well. God, in his grace, taught me a little something about empathy, about pastoral care, about love, right? About suffering, 
God in his grace gave our family the opportunity to see his sovereignty in a new light. Sometimes that's what the works are that he calls us to do. Learning to walk and live in the grace of God. See, the Apostle Paul, again, he doesn't give us a list in verse 10, but he does remind us to enjoy the grace of God as God brings opportunities into our lives. So the beauty of the gospel, and I'll close with this, the beauty of the gospel is not that we transform our own meager efforts into salvation, but that we receive God's efforts which transform us as we walk with him in faith. Try as we might, we can never alter the substance of our fallen condition and convert our base perdition into salvific gold. We simply can't. Soteriological alchemy will always fail. It is by grace, it is by grace you have been saved. Now, one way we enjoy God's grace is through the celebration of communion, something we do here at Bergen Park Church every week. Uh, we celebrate communion together and understand communion will not save us. Communion will never save you. But there is a kind of sacramental element in communion in that it, it nourishes us spiritually, you see. God uses this to encourage the body, to build us up in faith. And so I want to invite you, if you've not picked up the, the communion elements, uh, go ahead and grab these, these elements. We're going to take some time and worship our Lord today through communion. You just take a moment to reflect on the wonder, the beauty of God's grace, and then we'll celebrate the communion together in just a moment. Jesus was betrayed, he, he took the bread and he broke it and gave thanks. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus took the cup and he said, this is the blood of the covenant, my blood poured out for you. Drink this in remembrance of me. Lord, we thank you for your grace, your mercy, and that it is truly by grace we have been saved, that we don't have to contribute anything. We can simply enjoy what you have done for us because we know that you love us, Lord. You care for your people. We thank you for that. Lord, help us to walk in true grace, this favor that you've shown your people, and to extend grace to others uh, this week. Lord, would you walk with us in Jesus' name. Amen.